And then uh, last time we covered the second letter, the shortest letter, uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna, verses 8 through 11. And so today we're at the third letter, verses 12 to 17 in chapter 2 of Revelation, and that is the church in Pergamum. And um, as a uh, title, I've just called this the faithful but compromising church. Faithful but compromising. They are a faithful church. They are a true church. But they are compromising, and we'll get into that more uh, here in just a minute. But as a prelude to that, I, I want to remind you, these are real letters, obviously, to real churches with real people. These are not symbolic stories. These were very real situations, very real people facing real challenges and uh, having real needs. And so there's the instant application and original intent of meaning for those who received the letter at the end of the first century. But then there's also that extrapolated application for all of us, for every believer, for every church, for all time, there is application and um, um, learning of doctrine that we can gain from every letter here. But let's just jump right into it because um, I know we got a lot to cover here. Um, first of all, let's read the passage. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, or Pergamos, same means the same thing, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my martyr, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So right off the bat, looking at the components of the letter to Pergamum, and of course you see how we started at Ephesus um, on the coast of the Aegean Sea, and then he moved to Smyrna. And you see how it's going to make a clockwise circular mail route going on up to Pergamum, which is about 100 miles north of uh, Ephesus, about 20 miles inland from the sea. Um, you see the others are on the coast, Pergamum being well inland 20 miles. It was on a major toll road for the Roman Empire. Um, and in the letter, we see the same elements that we see in the other letters. Namely, the beginning of the letter always starts off with a command, the command to write. Um, 
to write, he commands the angel of the church to write, to write this letter, to dictate it, and it's dictated through John. And then immediately following the command to write, there's the addressing of the church in Smyrna. The church and the city, I said Smyrna, Pergamum. The church and the city in Pergamum. And so let's just talk about that a moment, about Pergamum and what it meant, what the environment there was. Like I've talked about before, the historical, geographical, political, and social setting that they dealt with, and religious primarily. Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor, Asia Minor being a province of the Roman government. Ephesus was by far the largest city. Smyrna was the second largest city, but Pergamum was the capital. And it was so because for three centuries it had been the center of Roman power. They were the most loyal, the most um, obedient to the Roman emperors. They were the first to have a Roman uh, temple built to emperor worship there. In 29 B.C., there was a temple built there and, um, to the Roman emperor. And then later, two more. So they had a total of three temples to Roman emperors. And uh, the name itself, Pergamum, there's a lot of dispute uh, about what it actually means. Um, the most literal meaning is citadel. And uh, that's because of the setting of the city, I'll tell you in just a minute. Citadel being, being like a high fortress on high ground. But also, because of a kind of a unique thing that happened, the word parchment comes from the word Pergamum. Parchment was invented in Pergamum. And what happened was the great library of Alexandria in Egypt had thousands of handwritten copies of books. You know, books were only handwritten then. There were, were no printing presses. So a handwritten book, imagine how valuable that was. So to have thousands of copies was indeed a treasure. Well, Pergamum, because they were the royal city, they were the jewel of Asia, so to speak, they wanted to have a great library. And um, Asia didn't have the parchment and vellums, uh, the... Um, Papyrus. They didn't have the papyrus that came from Egypt. So they invented parchment or vellum to take its place upon which they could write books. So that's where that came from. Secondly, the roots of the words from which we get marriage come from one part of the word in the word Pergamum. So literally, the city's name also means mixed marriage and mixed not in like, but in antitypes. And we'll see how that applies perfectly here in just a minute too. But Pergamum was a very, very interesting place. Uh, this is a picture of modern day Bergama, which is the replacement city that's left from Pergamum. And the ruins of Pergamum, this is down on the plain, and you see the mountain in the background, that's a conical hill that rises over a thousand feet out of the plain. And on top of it was the citadel of per Pergamum. So any visitor coming there 
would be immediately impressed by this huge throne sticking up out of the plain. And um, here's a, a shot zooming in of it. Over here to the left, that's the ruins of the citadel itself. In the middle are the ruins of the um, temple to Trajan, one of the Roman Caesars, emperors. Over here on the far right is the ruins of the temple of Zeus, the altar of Zeus. And the altar of Zeus, by the way, was nominated to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a huge, and when you say altar, it was really a great, huge thing that was um, hundreds. It was like um, the base of it was 400 and something feet, and just the altar itself was 120 feet wide and 100 feet deep. Uh, in fact, here is a, um, a skip ahead. Here is a model of what that altar looked like. This is a model built in the Museum of Berlin. But, um, but to go back, here, here, here is the theater, the Colosseum. And down below it, at the foot of this, would be the Agora or the marketplace. Y'all remember that word? I've brought that up now three times. The Agora was the marketplace of these cities. There's a shot up on the, the uh, uh, Acropolis. The high point of the city was called an Acropolis. And that gives you an image of the way the theater looks. This is up on top of it, and those are the ruins of the temple up on top. That's the ruins of the uh, temple to uh, Caesar Trajan. And then here's a model of the way it was laid out. See the Trajan Temple on the left, the library, the temple to Athena, the altar of Zeus, and then the Agora down below, which is the marketplace. And then there's a temple to Dionysus, which is the uh, Greek god of, um, uh, back, uh, what's his name? Uh, huh? Bacchus. Yeah, the, the god of wine and drunkenness. Yeah. And um, so anyway, here in this city, you had all this going on. But in addition to the uh, temple to Athena, to Zeus, and to other Greek gods, and being the center of Roman emperor, the imperial cult, worship of the Roman Caesars. Another big point to make here is that they also were the center of worship of a god called um, Asclepius. 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 I had to look this up to figure out how to pronounce it, but Asclepius is the Greek god of healing and medicine. The symbol is a snake wrapped around a pole. And now, any of you in medicine, y'all have seen the symbol, the caduceus, and the caduceus is two snakes wrapped around a pole that face each other. Well, the, and by the way, it's also known and worshiped as a savior, Snakes are a part of everything to do with the worship. This, this is a, an inscription on some of the columns from uh, Pergamum. This, this is actually a column in Pergamum. You see the snakes there. And here, do y'all recognize that symbol? That's the symbol. That's not the Caduceus. That's the Asclepius, which is 
on the back of every ambulance. You see? So anyway, but in the temple of Asclepius, what would happen is they'd have snakes crawling around on the floor, and they were, but they weren't poisonous, but you'd go in the temple, and if you were sick, and if a snake touched you, supposedly you were healed. So, um, or dead one. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but but the, reason why I'm, the reason why I'm bringing all this up is because in the letter, y'all remember me reading, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is? This is Satan's city. So what does that mean? Well, some people think, well, it's because it was the center of so much of the Greek mythology. There was so much idolatry there, so many gods worshipped in such a grand and glorious way. that So that referred to Satan's throne. Some think, well, it was the center of Roman emperor worship, the cult of the imperial worship of Caesar. That made it the center of Satan's work on earth, Satan's throne. Um, you know, the... Um, um, uh, situation there had many possibilities for why it was called Satan's throne. And some people think that's just like hyperbole, that it's just referring to the fact that there was intense demonic activity there. But I think it's significant that it's referred to as Satan's throne. In other words, Satan's city. And I think and as y'all know, I take things very literally or try to first as the natural meaning of things. And you remember how we talked about in the beginning how I believe that a lot of this, like the use of the term angel, is giving us a glimpse into the spiritual battle that's going on in the background. You know, there is a spiritual warfare that we don't see. And just like there is a prince of Persia and there's a prince of Russia and all these nations have demons assigned to them, and as well they have angels assigned to them, like churches, I think, have angels assigned, and like individual believers have angels assigned to protect them. I think we have to remember Satan is a created being. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. And he is certainly the prince of what? This world. He is the prince of this world. And so I don't think it's beyond reason to think that it literally meant Pergamum is where Satan hung out. This is the center of his, his this is his headquarters. You know, he's got to have headquarters somewhere. He's not like God. See, we think Satan's everywhere. And like when we're tempted, we think, well, Satan did it. Well, it's probably a demon because I don't mean it the wrong way, but I'm not high enough on the threat chart for Satan to be dealing with me. You know, Satan may be tempting somebody, but I don't think it's me because I'm way down the list of priorities, you know. He's not omnipresent. Well, and in fact, um, an author did a book called Two Babylons where he documented how that the, the, the priest of Nimrod who took all the Satan worship to um, Babylon when Babylon was defeated in the days of Belshazzar, he documented how those priests actually moved west and north and went to Pergamum. And so it's kind of like the center of Satan's throne and activity was in Babylon, 
when it was defeated and shut down, they moved to Pergamum. And then when it was defeated and shut down, they moved west and north again, I think. But, huh? Well, we ain't got there yet. But they're headed there. They, they keep moving west and north. Yeah. Well, well, well think, think about this, Chuck. Like right after this, and you know, the, the age of Pergamum was most illustrated in the third to the seventh centuries because at the beginning of the fourth century in 311 AD, the Roman monarch died leaving things in a shamble and a Western general and an Eastern general met at 311 on the Tiber River, and even though the eastern general had twice as many forces, the western general conquered him. And he did so the night before he had a dream and a vision where he saw, you know, a cross and a, a command that by this sign you will conquer. That was Constantine. Constantine then declared Christianity to be the state religion and in the Edict of Milan in 313, he made Christianity legal and accepted and popular. So I think about 300 years after this letter, the center of Satan's throne moved to Rome, where it dwelt for a millennia at least. And it may have indeed moved to Washington or New York now. But And, and I, I mean that seriously. You know, I know we're laughing, but and I'm not making... I'm saying I do think there is a physical center of Satan's activity on earth. Yeah, and, and by far the best place for Satan to work is through religion. Religion is Satan's ace trump. Look at Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. People are deceived by immorality. People are deceived by ignorance. But they're most deceived by religion. And a prostitute knows that they need Christ. A murderer knows they need Christ, but a religious person thinks they don't need anything. So that's the background, and then moving on, the self-description, and I think this is important because of the situation. Remember, the self-description Christ gives in every letter is complementary to the situation of the letter. What does, how does he describe himself? As the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. From the vision in chapter 1, verse 16, the sharp two-edged sword of Christ comes out of his mouth. So what's that, what is that obviously a reference to? The Word. The Word of God. And what does it mean, sharp and two-edged? Hmm? Judgment, yeah. Huh? It cuts and divides. And two-edged means it cuts both ways. It cuts in terms of discerning truth and it cuts in terms of exposing error. It cuts in terms of edification. It cuts in terms of condemnation. It cuts both ways. And it is sharp and it's living and active, Hebrews 4, verse 12. It's powerful to discern every aspect of life. Here's the commendation we come to quickly here. And Christ says, I know. The introduction of how he commends the church is, I know where you dwell. You dwell at Satan's throne. You dwell in the middle of satanic activity. I know that. And secondly, I know that you hold fast. You grip tightly the faith of my name. 
And that even when Antipas, one of your members, was persecuted and martyred, the witness, word for witness there, is the word martyro, from which we get the word martyr. Interestingly enough, that's how the word martyr came. The, it never meant martyr. We, that, we took that word and made it to mean someone who dies for their faith, but that's because it meant witness. But the early Christians always ended up dying for their faith. They were the ultimate witness. So here's, here's what they're complimented for. They're commended for their holding fast the faith in the middle of dwelling in Satan's throne. But, but there's criticism. What's the criticism? They are drifting toward compromise. They are drifting toward compromise. I have a few things against you. Some, and notice, notice critically how this is worded. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And we don't have time to go to Numbers, but y'all know the story of Balaam in Numbers? Because what? Balaam was a prophet for hire, a prostitute prophet, who Balak, the Moabite king, tried to get to curse Israel. He tried three times, and God reversed it every time. And so he couldn't, he couldn't curse Israel, so what did he do? He said, well, all right, well, here's the way you, here's the way you mess them up. You tempt them with the Moabitess women. You get your finest women to go intermarry with them and lead them into idolatry and immorality. And so that worked. And so 24,000 ended up dying because of that. Uh, but, and then in like manner, you have some who in the same way, the same manner, they hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And, you know, we brought that up before. Nicolaitans is not really clear exactly who uh, the name comes from, the person. But it was obviously a similar cult where compromise with the world was taught. Like, why not sin so that grace would abound? Since grace covers all sin, that's sin so that grace would abound. Like, let's participate in the uh, pagan rituals. Let's participate in the idolatries and the... Uh, sexual immorality that goes along with it. Let's participate in all that because Christ has redeemed us from all that, so it doesn't matter how we live. So that's just sin so that grace would abound. So a very corrupt um, doctrine that they were teaching. So what does Christ say? His response to this is, therefore, verse 16, repent, turn Change your mind, metanoia, turn, you're going this way, I'm telling you to repent and turn, go the other way. Repent, or else I'm coming, and I'm coming quickly in judgment. And I will not only judge you, but I will make war against them. Who's the them? The them are the some who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, and the some who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So what I'm trying to point out is you've got the church who is a true church with people who have genuine faith, who hold fast to the faith of Christ and who persevere in the middle of suffering in the middle of Satan's throne. But they have some in the church, associated with the church, who hold to the false doctrine of Balaam, 
Old Testament picture and the false doctrine of Nicolaitans, which is a New Testament picture. Both a practice of immorality, sexual licentiousness, and idolatry. I think here that when he says, therefore repent, that that's addressing all of them. Like they all need to repent. The church needs to repent from their compromise and the, the unbelievers need to repent from their wrong doctrine. But then when he says, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them, the them I believe to be the ones in the false doctrines of Balaam and Nicolaitans, not the true church. Like Christ would not wage war with his own people. He, he would ch chasten them and discipline them, but not wipe them out with war because the, the symbol of the sword, go to Revelation 19, the sword comes out of the mouth of Christ to do what? To smite the nations. Judgment. Well, and I, I agree, but, but I think that the church needs to repent of their sin too, but their sin is not unto death. Well, let's move on because I want us to get to the application here, and I know I think there's some real good points to be made in terms of life application for us. Of course, he ends with the counsel that ends every letter, and that is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is a addressed to all people, not just to this church, but anyone who would have an ear to ear, an ear to hear. And then here are the promises to the overcomers in verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, a white stone or a white pebble, and a new name written on the stone. All right, what does this mean? There's three things here promised to overcomers. Number one, hidden manna. What's hidden manna? Well, of course, y'all know what manna was. It was the bread that came down out of heaven. And it was hidden in that reference to the Old Testament where that some of the manna was put in a pot, put in the Ark of the Covenant, and hidden away, like preserved for a future time. And it was preserved so that the children of Israel might know what manna was. Well, likewise, I think here's a reference to the coming bread of life. Because what did Christ say about himself in John? That I am the bread of life that comes down what? Out of heaven. So the hidden manna is Christ giving true spiritual nourishment, true uh, bread that really nourishes the soul. And of course, who is that bread? Christ. He means giving himself in true nourishment. And then he says, I also give him a white stone, a white pebble. Many different interpretations of what that could be. They talk about, you know, you'd have a courtroom vote where a white stone meant you were innocent. Black stone meant you were guilty. Um, in the Roman games, white stones were given like as trophies and the name of the victor would be written on the stone. White stones were used as tickets to a big feast like the marriage supper of the lamb coming at the end. Uh, you'd have a white stone to gain entrance to the big feast. Um, many different meanings. In fact, I tell you what I think might be the most likely meaning though is referring back to the umen. You know, you remember the umen and the thumen on the high priest vest? You had all the different colored stones for the 12 tribes, but you had two stones that were white and they were the lights, the umen and the thumen 
And that symbolized the very purity and presence of God. And so I think it very well could be a reference to the coming kingdom where we all shall be priests in the kingdom of God in a very literal and real way and that the stone has a new name written on it which no one knows but he who receives it. Think about this. Um, We're all known by different names. But with the most intimate relationship you have, say that's with your spouse, aren't there some names that are reserved just between the two of y'all? And I'm not going to get too deep here. But, um, but y- y'all know what I'm trying to say? Here is an image, I think, of intimacy. That Christ will intimately give us a new name in heaven that we don't have. And it will be just between us. Because we will be identified. And you know, in the Bible, your name meant who you were. You know, like the name Aaron meant something. Um, it meant, you know, mountain or bearer of light. The name Moses had a meaning. Every name had a meaning. And I think that name Christ will give to us will have a very special, intimate fellowship meaning for us. So here's a picture of sweet communion of sweet nourishment from the bread of heaven, of the marriage feast with the Christ of heaven, of entrance to that feast and gaining a new intimate personal name. So how do we apply all this? Um, We all live somewhere. We may not live in Satan's throne. We may not live at the center of Satan's activity, but there are demons everywhere. And they're all at work. How does it help to know that Christ knows where we live? And isn't that an encouragement to us that the one who has the sharp two-edged sword knows where we live and enables us to deal with it? Secondly, what is the root sin of this church? Like they were pure in that they held fast to the faith. They were loving. They reached out to outsiders. Unlike the church at Ephesus who was doctrinally pure, but yet cold, they'd left their first love. This church was very loving, very welcoming. And so outsiders felt very comfortable. So what was their sin? So they were too tolerant, right? I think you're dead on, Eric, because where Ephesus had sacrificed love for the sake of truth. They were sacrificing what? Truth for the sake of love. Like, what's an example we see in the modern church today? There's a very, I think, a very relevant example going on in the whole issue of homosexuality. Because we have to be loving. We have to reach out to those caught in the sin of homosexuality. And the church has to be um, very proactive in that. But where the church falls into error is that if you accept the sin with the outreach, like how do you balance holiness, maintaining holiness, with being evangelistic and having outreach? Well, the 
I think the balance is what you mentioned, Matthew 18. Because if you love people enough, you will present them with the truth too. And say, look, we love you. And because we love you, we have to point out this sin. And you can't just, like, the same thing is happening in many churches that happen with them. They let the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites come in and participate in the church. And they say, well, we got to love them. Well, but they needed to point out their sin and bring them to the gospel. It's such a challenge, I think, for us to realize that you can't sacrifice one truth for the sake of love. And I think it's significant. The solution to this is to point to how did Christ describe himself? Because if you go back to Smyrna and they were dealing with suffering and persecution and death, and martyrdom, Christ said, remember, I'm the first and the last. I was the one who was dead and who's now made alive. And if you overcome, I promise you the second death won't touch you. So the solution to their problem was in who he is. The solution to this problem is in who Christ is. He says, remember, I'm the one with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. So what's he saying? I am the word of God. And if you focus on the word, the word says, yes, you must minister to these people. The word says, yes, you must love them. The word says, yes, you must preach the gospel. But the word also says, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. It purge out the leaven from among you. You know, um, if you're a friend with, James says, if you're a friend with the world, you're an enemy with God. You know, so the balance is in the word. The word has all the balance we need. Balance is not compromise. See, I think we, from politics, we think that balance means, well, you compromise this, you compromise this. The word is full of truths and tensions where you don't give up God's sovereignty and you don't give up man's responsibility. You don't give up pursuit of holiness and you don't give up evangelism. You know, it's, it's got to be tied together. And um, anyway, that's, that's the way I see it. Here, here is a, let me, let me close with this comment. I thought this was a real good quote that I found. Compromise is simply changing the question to fit the answer. Compromise is the art of giving your opponent that which he is not powerful enough to take. Think about it. And compromise, I'll close by a silly story, trying to compromise with the throne of Satan or the works of demons is like the hunter who was cold one winter and so went out to kill a bear and he found a bear and the bear said, why are you going to shoot me? He said, because I'm cold and I need warmth. And he said, well, I'm hungry and I need food. And he said, so why don't we try to work something out? So the hunter ended up enveloped by the bear's coat and the bear ended up being satisfied and full. So that's the way it is when you try to compromise with the works of Satan.